a Spanish language show should be on the air. A show celebrating the LGBTQ life should be on the air. A show that celebrates women or celebrates children or celebrates the environment should be on the air. We led with that as opposed to, well, if we do a show like that, will it get rating? This is Frontiers of Commoning with David Bollier. My guest today is Jimmy Buff, Executive Director of Radio Kingston, WKNY 1490 AM and 107.9 FM in Kingston, New York. Radio Kingston is the closest thing that I've encountered as a commons in the world of Sirius Radio. It's a non-commercial platform serving the city of Kingston, New York and the Hudson Valley with a vibrant, diverse mix of music, art, conversation, and community storytelling. Most of us have grown up with commercial radio, and we know it as a raucous place of shock jocks and blaring advertisements and top 40 music. And of course, you can find right-wing talk radio, too, pushing conspiracy theories and white identity politics. It could easily lead you to believe that there aren't any serious, intelligent, caring, creative, progressive people in your community. And this really has a lot to do with the deregulation of radio in the 1990s and intense corporate consolidation of radio ownership and the homogenization that resulted. Jimmy Buff has set out to change that starting in October 2017 when he took over a commercial oldies AM radio station in Kingston with the mission of trying to turn it into a lively non-commercial station that could reflect and connect the community. Today, we're going to spend some time with Jimmy, an experienced radio pro who has spent the past several years transforming Kingston Radio into a participatory community-minded radio, a format that does a whole lot of commenting. The station is still a work in progress, but they have already shown that community radio can be exciting, authentic, unexpected, and diverse. So welcome, Jimmy. Hi, David. I'd love to just get your thoughts on how you, as somebody who spent some 30-plus years in commercial radio with New York City stations and a very legendary station in Woodstock, New York, how you got into a non-commercial, community-minded radio. Uh, a stroke of great fortune. <laughs> um, I worked in a uh, hardcore commercial radio world for a long time. And even when I came to Woodstock, it was an independently owned radio station, but it had a very, very strong commercial bent. It had some good-minded folks there and some good-minded intentions, but at the heart of everything they did, it was about making an ad sale to someone. Uh, along the way, I had uh, been exposed growing up in New York City radio. I was familiar with the legendary WBAI, which is a non-commercial radio station there. And, you know, my, my personal inclinations were often drawn more to the left and right of the dial where you find non-commercial radio stations and uh, was really intrigued by what, what that world was like. Along the way, became really uh, steeped in the concept that the airwaves belong to the people. That's why the FCC regulates it, right? We have an obligation to serve the public good, and radio stations are granted a license to perform that. And if they don't, they can have that license taken away. It's rare that a license is taken away, and there's been a lot of latitude about what commercial radio stations are allowed to do in support of maintaining their business operations in order to uh, stay in business. But it is a thing that belongs to the people. And when I crossed paths with Peter Buffett a few years ago, and we started doing a, a weekly radio show together out of Woodstock, and I just got exposed to some extraordinary uh, thinking and ideas, including you and yours, David, it just somehow the stars aligned and we ended up 
uh, buying this old, you know, AM legendary AM radio station here in Kingston, which celebrates its 81st birthday next week, actually. The concept of community radio is a relatively scarce and underdeveloped idea, you know, steeped in such things as K-Rock in New York and WNEW. How did you conceptualize what you wanted to do with the Kingston station and and what, you know, hunches or intuitions did you have about the kind of formatted programming you could do? There's a lot of community radio around the country in a lot of um, different areas. It's just w- what sets us apart is that we have this extraordinary uh, good fortune uh, to be uh, solely funded by one foundation. And so we don't have to do pledge drives or fundraising. And that allows us to do things a bit differently. But the idea of community radio has been around for a long time, and lots and lots of cool little community radio stations exist. And the model for opening up the platforms of you know radio stations that exist in, in various places to the people of those places for the sole reason of um, giving them an opportunity to share whatever it is that's on their mind, there's a, a strong track record for that in, in broadcasting in the country. Our perspective, though, what we did here is realize that this radio station, which had been a commercial entity until Radio Kingston Corporation took over, um, had never had that opportunity, didn't present that opportunity to people from the uh, community of Kingston. And as such, the roster and programming looked like uh, Kingston from 30 or 40 years ago, and it didn't really represent the changing uh, demographics of the city. And we opened up the platform. It was a decision and an intention to open up the platform to the folks who hadn't had access to it before. Your mission statement says that you're uh, dedicated to developing, quote, a community ethic rooted in the inherent values of benevolence, equity, compassion, and love, and one that tells you where you are and who is there with you. Tell me what this brings to mind for you and how that became kind of a seed for your thinking about the the programming. I think that last bit might actually be pinched from Surviving the Future, the, uh, the book that uh, Sean Alexander um, uh, cribbed from the writings of, of uh, David. David, David Fleming. Yeah. When I hear it read back to me, I think, oh, we better do that. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what we said we're going to do. We, we better do that. And um, so we try. You know, we, uh, we provide a tremendous amount of support to people who come here to do radio shows. When we came in, to WKNY Radio Kingston in November of 2013. I think the roster was something like there maybe 19 people who were contributing to the radio station and 18 of them were white men. That just reflected the nature of broadcasting in Kingston since its inception. We opened up the platform and we opened up the opportunity for people to do radio by beginning with a series of public conversations around what we hope uh, Radio Kingston could be. And then people started to say, hey, I'd like to do a show. And could I do it on this subject or could it have this perspective? You know, by and large, the answer was always yes. Give us an idea of some of the diversity of programs, some that you consider offbeat but very popular or pushing the envelope on uh, what you hear on radio. One of the things we did was we added a daily Spanish language radio show, all in Spanish. 18, 19% of our population that we know of, because Spanish language speaking populations are often underreported. With the numbers we know of, it's right, 20% of Kingston is Spanish speaking. One of our elementary schools nearby, 52% of the students have Spanish as their first language spoken at home. So we realized we needed some Spanish language programming. We put the first ever daily Spanish language radio show on the air here in the city of Kingston. It aired Monday through Friday from 10 until noon. 
meant that we stopped broadcasting in English at 10. We turned to Spanish, and then at noon we turned back to English, and people were, you know, what what you know people are gonna have to turn off the radio if they don't understand you know if they don't understand Spanish and will they turn it back on you know that's a, a, a commercial program director's nightmare is to tell people that okay these two hours aren't for you but we hope you'll come back after that you know we ended up with we now have four Spanish language programs here and, and looking to add more and so that was a big step for us uh, one of the more unusual shows to come out of our public conversation was, it's called The Black Meta. It airs Tuesdays from one till three. Uh, two separate people came together in that meeting, uh, Freedom Walker and, and Beetle Bailey. They got together, created a show together, made a pitch to the radio station, and come in and do this really interesting two hours of radio uh, centered around a, a black experience that's unique to each of them. When Beetle came into the radio station and she had a copy of, I think it was Camus' The Stranger in paperback under their arm at the end of the show went on this sort of riff about uh, black existentialism in America versus, you know, consumer, like just wove all this amazing stuff in. And myself and another longtime radio colleague were so stunned by what we were hearing come in of the speaker. We just looked at each other with our, you know, our chins on our chest. We couldn't believe it. And what we realized too, is that a lot of people are really good at this right out of the gate. It makes me wonder if I've overemphasized how hard radio is to do. <laughs> over the years because <laughs> so many people have landed into their position here at Radio Kings and their shows and just felt like they've been doing it for a long time, even though they're just beginning. Are most of your, your radio hosts ordinary people, quote, meaning they're not radio professionals or performers, but uh, just people who have a passion and wanted to share it? Is that generally how it's been working? Oh, yeah. I'd say 97% of the hosts here. You know, we number well over 50 hosts and 50 shows now. But the people who made radio and occupation, I think there's maybe three of us. But beyond that, I don't think there were any radio professionals. You know, in normal commercial radio, you're motivated by ratings and the ad revenues that it generates. How do you decide what deserves what time slot and what shows are pulling their weight or are worth uh, keeping on? Yeah, it was a question early on. People said, well, how are you going to tell if Radio Kingston is a success or not? I said, well, after a year, uh, we're going to go out onto Broadway here, the main thoroughfare through the middle of Kingston. And we're going to, you know, wet the tip of our index finger and stick it in the air. And the city feels any different. Um, I'm, uh, you know, we're now, we just passed three years of Radio Kingston. And I'm, I'm saying, well, after five years, we're going to go out into Broadway. It's hard to tell. Uh, we rapidly became, uh, you know, a verb or an, and a noun in this city, you know, within six months of taking over WKNY. You know, this is a radio station that for the better part of 80 years had pretty much maintained a particular perspective and through five or six major ownership changes had maintained what it did. And when Radio Kingston came in, we were the biggest change to happen to WKNY in its history. And we incorporated a lot of the programming that was already here. A bunch of programming was syndicated from a big radio company and had no relevance to the local scene. So we did away with that. And those are the slots that we filled in. But it was a huge, huge difference. And within six months of taking the air uh, in November 2017, we had a thing. We had, Radio Kingston was a thing. I'm curious to know how you have changed the culture or politics of Kingston just by opening up some airtime for different perspectives. Short of putting your finger in the air, how do you detect 
people's attitudes or uh, self-awareness of the Kingston community has changed. That's not hard data that you can collect and quantify. I think that we facilitate a, a tremendous number of conversations about the city that the city needs to have about itself and how that relates to, say, policy change or to um, people uh, shifting opinions or perspectives. Uh, we think we, we think it has. We, you know, we think, for instance, the conversation around gentrification in Kingston gets represented uh, pretty regularly on the air here. And so there's some attention paid to a topic that might not get attention otherwise. You know, I think that we're an outlet for when people have something they want to talk about. They find a show or they find uh, some way to express it here at Radio Kingston. So I think we're I think we're part of the conversation. I think that uh, when our elected officials want to make a, an announcement to the public, in fact, through the pandemic, we have provided support for both our mayor and our county executive to do that on a regular basis. But given the uh, the polarization that occurs in so much politics today, how do you deal with some of that extremism or rancor or angriness? Are all viewpoints welcome or how do you uh, try to keep a certain filter on the quality and, and civic nature of the dialogue? You know, we do have uh, what we can what we call our on-air code of conduct for hosts to sign on to when they begin broadcasting from Radio Kingston. And the idea around civility is incumbent upon the hosts themselves to uh, maintain. We inherited a couple of conservative talk shows that were entirely welcome to stay if they could have made the turn around the bend from fear and um, the kind of stereotyping and fear that right-wing radio is known for now. If they could have made the turn into a place of representing some conservative values, I guess, for lack of a better description, traditional conservative values, if they were worried about you know, how the city was spending their money without fire or anxiety about immigrants, they could have stayed, but they were not in that mindset. Uh, so in other words, it was a lot of personal vilification and that kind of thing going on. Yeah. And just a lot of code whistling and things like that. And it was, it, and we worked, uh, you know, I worked with that, those two shows pretty regularly to try and bring them around, but they just couldn't make that turn. Um, would we welcome back those perspectives? Sure. Of course, as long as they can uh, relate in a way that is not um, hurtful and furthers a dialogue about improving, uh, you know, our city of Kingston. Does Radio Kingston register on the Nielsen ratings uh, for, or the, I'm sorry, Arbitron or the other radio ratings? And has it disrupted or changed the, the Kingston or regional radio market? You were right the first time. Um, it used to be Arbitron, but then Nielsen bought the Arbitron company. <laughs> oh, okay. And so now uh, Nielsen has a monopoly on both radio and television ratings. And that's a whole nother story we can get into about a company that sells their services both to the people who make the ratings and the people who use the ratings to buy advertising. They're, they've got both sides covered. Our market is too small. We would be in what's considered the Poughkeepsie uh, radio market, maybe market number 170 in size in the United nice. States. But to represent really well, you'd have to have a strong signal down in the Poughkeepsie Metro, which is about 35 minutes south of us. And uh, we just don't, our signal just isn't strong enough to represent, nor is the format um, really well suited to how radio ratings are collected these days. How strong is your signal and what is the geographic scope, maybe in square miles or, or some other measurement? 
We are a thousand watts uh, licensed AM radio station. Uh, AM radio station Class C is what we are, and we have been granted license for a two hundred and fifty watt FM translator, which, according to the FCC, we must simulcast our AM signal on. Part of what the FCC called the AM revitalization program, they found some bandwidth on the FM dial where we could simulcast as well and have a have a, a dual. Uh, presence on on people's radio uh, wherever they listen to radio so a thousand watts um in this area you know we uh, cover our city we go you know 15 or 20 miles north west south depending on the terrain west you run into the foothills of the catskill mountains not so good we're two miles a little bit uphill from the hudson river here in kingston and then it's flat across the other side of the river to duchess and northern uh northern duchess in columbia county and we but we most notably cover our city, and that was the intent, was to be able to cover our city when broadcasters generally try and extend out as far as they can to the ends of their signals. We want to go deeper. We want to focus on deep, not wide. It strikes me that while uh, the station may not have as big an impact on ratings or ad revenues in the radio market, it's real importance is really non-market in the sense of opening up the space for people to see each other, to hear from each other, to see that there is a more diversified community than perhaps they know of or perhaps is represented in broadcasting. You know, I'm just curious about how that has sort of stirred things up and opened things up to a different self-perception, different types of conversations. I mean, I see from your schedule listing, you have shows like Out Radio, Hip Hop, and uh, Shiro's, a, a feminist-oriented show. Tell me a bit about how that has affected the civic life and culture of, of Kingston. You know, on Sunday afternoons, we have an environmental show hosted by a fellow named John Bowermaster. John has been making um, documentary films uh, about the environment for a long, long time, and uh, he happens to live uh, just outside of Kingston. And so when it came time to consider an environmental show, we had a conversation with John, and he was entirely up for it. John has often said that the Hudson Valley uh, probably has more environmental activists per uh, square mile than any other place that he's ever been. Our home to Riverkeeper and Clearwater, the environmental movement, really got its start, you know, down near the West Point area in a battle over a mountaintop that Central, uh, excuse me, that Con Edison, the New York City Power Authority, wanted to lop the top off of and pour superheated water into the Hudson River. And that brought together grassroots environmental activists and fishermen, people who were not necessarily always on the same side of fight, got together to stop that project. Much the same as we have this incredible per capita uh, relationship with environmentalists, Kingston itself has this extraordinarily strong base of nonprofits. We've probably got two dozen nonprofits in the city covering a lot of different things. That's a really great farm team when you're thinking about creating radio, radio programming. You know, there isn't a lot of inclusiveness when it comes to LGBTQ issues on the radio. And having the Hudson Valley LGBTQ Center in Kingston led to that the creation of that program, Out Radio. We have a number of organizations in Kingston that support um, African-American life here. And uh, we have some shows that support kids. And we have that show, Shiro's, that you mentioned that has that very strong perspective on women in the music business, which is an extraordinary tale in and of itself. There are radio formats that will not play two female artists back-to-back. -back. They will not have two radio hosts uh, who are female back-to-back. -back. There was a country music consultant, radio consultant a few years ago who 
um, theorized that country music didn't need to play any female country artists on the radio. That it just wow. that people wow. tuned that men tuned out. And so there's a lot of perspective about that. You know, we have wellness and meditation show on the air. And we just looked around and all the things that felt compelling about our community, uh, we thought that they would sound compelling on the radio as well. You know, I'm just struck as somebody who is involved in broadcast and broadcast policy 20, 30 years ago. I'm curious how market-driven radio almost dictates a certain narrow spectrum of content, all of it, of course, more hyped and marketable than a lot of the programs you just mentioned. And it strikes me that you're ha having that foundation support and functioning yourself as kind of a participatory commons just yields a whole different, qualitatively different spectrum of programming, which more accurately represents the community. And I'm just wondering, first of all, if you agree with that, and second, how that could be fostered or maintained in more communities around the country. I do agree. I'm married to a librarian, and she'll often say uh, when regarding the library and, and sourcing what books that uh, you know they keep on the shelves there in the stacks, that for every book, it's reader. And we thought, well, for every show, it's listener. And we made our decision based on not what was going to um, achieve, uh, you know, achieve critical mass and lowest common denominator when it comes to aggregating an audience, but what should be on the air. A Spanish language show should be on the air. A show celebrating the LGBTQ life should be on the air. A show that celebrates women or celebrates children or celebrates the environment should be on the air. We led with that as opposed to, well, if we do a show like that, will it get rating? And then made a decision. And so, um, you know, leading with what should be on the air and not having to worry about ratings or translating that into pledge drives or into ad dollars. There's an extraordinarily um, freeing place to come from and gives us the sense to, you know, gives us in a sense the opportunity to broadcast in almost the most pure sense that you can. Is that what really differentiates you from public radio, which has a similar mission, one might say, but of course comes across as more well, routinized, stodgy, even boring? Tell me, you know, is it the funding source? Is it kind of being part of that consortium of public radio or how, what's your theory on that? Yeah, I, I really think it's our funding source, you know, um, NPR and, uh, you know, PRI and all those other um, subsidiaries that provide programming to NPR affiliated radio stations are, it's important for them to aggregate an audience as well so that they can capitalize that, market it, and get, you know, pledge drives, get money to support the local radio stations. So when your local NPR affiliate is, you know, carrying all things considered, you know, there's a hefty price tag, one, to produce that show, but that it get a certain degree of visibility and, and have a response with audiences so that they can market it to the local underwriters. They're not in the ad game for profit, but they're still, you know, NPR is still very much aware of audience numbers. It has given them a, a you know, an opportunity to be um, far more varied than uh, straight on commercial radio, but they're still beholden a little bit to underwriters, corporate underwriters, local businesses, and individual donors. And if there's a show that's on that isn't, you know, pulling its weight, it can get canceled just like a, a network television show for not having big enough numbers. Or if they tackle really controversial subjects and one of those underwriters doesn't like it and pulls their underwriting from that show, it can have an impact as well. We're extraordinarily, amazingly lucky to not have to have that so far. <laughs>
Do you think that Radio Kingston is just this glorious aberration, or do you think it it could be replicated more widely, or would that simply depend upon having single donors or angels who could help finance that kind of radio? I think a hybrid of the two, and I think we're eventually headed that way uh, ourselves. I think getting off the ground the way we did with one single funder was really important. I think that at some point, having the community participate by being able to support the programming is an essential aspect of creating community here. People want to participate to a degree. Can it be replicated? Yeah, I think I, I think I think that there are community radio stations who are operating close to this, same ideas close to it. I don't know how many of them have the opportunity that we've been given with one sole funder. Um, that can I, I, that certainly could go a long way to creating stations like this. But again, there are a lot of, you know, I, I I've paid attention to this for a while, and there are a lot of little great communities. In our area, we've got three or four cool little community stations uh, you know, that are happening. We try and remember that they were here first and that they've been doing this before and so that we, we don't get ahead of ourselves in the self-congratulatory. It strikes me that a lot of your mid- and long-term success will, in fact, hinge upon showing that you're integrated within the community, serving it in aggressive, unusual ways. You've, you've told me a little bit about giving space for political discussions, gentrification, and of course, the diversity of perspectives. But I, I know from talking to you in the past that you've been involved with things like a, a small grant program and even a mesh Wi-Fi system that you have seen these kind of things spin off almost naturally because you're a focal point for community action. Circling again back to the idea that radio is a commons, that it belongs to the people, uh, resources of the community belong to the, the community, and the bandwidth signed to a community is, is part of that. We also have a fair degree of infrastructure that goes along with that, like a 300-foot-tall broadcast tower and some equipment on the tower that could provide a Wi-Fi solution to a city that is many places uh, held hostage by uh, a monopoly from the local cable company. When you start to think that this doesn't belong to us, it belongs to everyone, and this being Radio Kingston and our resources, it starts to provoke a, a fair degree of imagination in the people involved in the process. And out of that has come this idea of the Kingston Equitable Internet Initiative based on an idea that came out of Detroit and has been replicated in a couple other places, that we can help support the creation of an internet, an ISP, a co-owned business. It'll be determined by the people who, who actually get in and, and help create the thing when it finally gets up and running, which it's, it's, got, it's starting to get some legs under it at this point. But that idea that none of this really belongs to us, that everything that comes across our plate that we can put back into the community to give to the community is really our operating system. And that's where we come from. When we realized that we didn't have have to have underwriting to cover operational expenses, but that there were people in the city of Kingston, local businesses who used to use WKNY as a, a resource to get word, the word out about their businesses. We could still do that, but we could then divert that the funds raised to a community fund to a, be administered by a, one of those great local nonprofits I was talking about earlier, who can uh, help the people in need in a moment's notice without some of the challenges of having to get into the, the social services system or waiting for the six or eight weeks that you sometimes have to do for immediate relief. The community fund has the ability to uh, have no barrier to entry for someone. You just have to have a need. And that can be supported by the businesses locally who then may even reap the benefits if that person who gets some support from the community fund then goes out and supports those local businesses. And so it really starts from this idea that none of this really belongs to us. 
I mean, they, the stunning irony to me is that the 1934 Communications Act, which is the charter for radio, specifically accented the need for localism, for diversity of perspectives, for diverse ideas. And yet, the way market systems have grown, the way capital has consolidated the radio market, that barely exists, and it falls to a community station that probably has very limited funds relative to the commercial ones, is doing most of this work. It makes me sort of wish that there were a way for policy to be more supportive of this instead of just being a, a dead letter. Yeah, it's remarkable. Along the way, the FCC, when they granted licenses to commercial radio stations in the early days, and the, those radio stations said, well, we'll be commercial, but we're only going to do it enough to support the operations. And of course, that didn't last, right? Suddenly, they decided that they wanted to make more in profits, and then they wanted to have shareholders, and then they wanted to have to perform well enough for their shareholders. And it grew and grew and grew. And we ended up with big radio companies. But until the mid-1990s, when you, as you referenced earlier, the uh, Deregulation Act, the ownership rules relaxed, and big, giant radio companies were created. That was kind of the, the nail in the coffin for diversity in radio, in radio programming and serving a community. You're, I'm sure, well aware of, of how the commercial radio stations always scream bloody murder at supposed infringements on their free speech when federal regulators say, no, you need diverse viewpoints, no, you need educational content, no, you need localism. And yet they have free use of airwaves worth billions of dollars as part of their infrastructure, airwaves that belong to all of us. And it's always stuck in my throat that they are supremely dependent financially on the taxpayers and the American public, yet the American public gets so little in return except for whatever is commercially viable. Yeah. And, you know, they make their, their passes at public service by running PSAs uh, in the middle of the night or six o'clock on a Sunday morning, they run a public affairs show and then put that in their public file and say, yeah, we, we're, we're serving the public good by doing those things and not even running that stuff in prime time. They used to be held more accountable for that and they're not anymore. The Fairness Doctrine went out the window in the late 1980s with Ronald Reagan as president and we ended up with right-wing radio. And right-wing radio, which took over the AM band, which had largely at that point been kind of abandoned by broadcasters, FM came along and it's where all the good stuff was happening. Man, did that change the course of a country, right? People think that radio is, can often be used for good, but it can be used in another manner as well. And that's one example of it. It was the farm team for what later became Fox, you could say, in that all these personalities got their, uh, what shall I say, they learned the ropes of the business and moved on to bigger things. Yeah. And without the um, requirement to present the other side fairly and for real, not just a, a slogan, it, it, they were easily able to color a narrative for a couple of decades that sort of led us to where we are now. Tell me, is there any effort among the very diverse and eclectic community radio stations to present a unified perspective or to try to change some FCC policies with respect to, to radio? Prometheus is a uh, radio group does that uh, has advocacy along those lines. They often lobby the FCC for um, opening up more low-power bandwidth for community radio stations to operate on. They challenge Oftentimes they challenge the awarding of, you know, like the license we got to transmit on the FM frequency. They would love to see that split up. They think that the opportunity for another group to have access to that bandwidth in Kingston would be great. It, it might well be. And there are national groups that are dedicated to community radio, but I don't know how much advocacy and policy making they're, they're trying to influence. 
I find it so fascinating because this type of community radio is so essential to a future of relocalization, which many people talk about as so essential to dealing with climate change or dealing with the carbon emissions from global supply chains. We need a greater local and regional consciousness. Yet the natural vehicles for that, such as radio, are generally stymied or underfunded or difficult to develop them further if they do exist in, in smaller ways. Yeah, without a doubt. I'm thinking back to something we were talking about a few minutes ago. I watched uh, CBS Sunday Morning. Uh, they did a piece on PBS TV's 50th anniversary. The big network commercials, National Network, was doing a, a nod to its public broadcasting cousin. What they never mentioned throughout the uh, entire piece was that PBS exists to serve the public good. That's its that's its reason for being, because the government wanted to make sure, right, that this organization would provide stuff that commercial broadcasters might not. It's like 7% of PBS's budget comes from the federal government. Other countries, like the CBC and the BBC, have broadcasters that are supported almost entirely by the government. And that includes being able to criticize those governments uh, because it's such a resource and a, and, a, and a national good. Well, tell me what sort of future you envision in the next couple of years for Radio Kingston. I know that you uh, have some new space that you might, you're going to be moving into at some point and either within having a community space like that or with your programming, how do you see Radio Kingston evolving? The Spanish language shows are coming up on their third anniversary and they began in January of 2018. You know, some of the other shows that we've had have been almost from the beginning. Some shows are fairly new. We've got, uh, we added a couple shows in, in the past few months, classical music show, a bilingual show. Because there's an example of how community radio has done other places, I can also look at the culture around those community radio stations, and it can get ossified. WBAI in New York City has struggled with this for a long time. They really resist change. I, I'm really wondering if we should have term limits on some of our shows and give other people an opportunity to come in, or is there a way to rotate people out and rotate them back in? Tell me about your station governance and how that doesn't get ingrown or ossified. We are a work in progress. We've been developing that since we took over three years ago. Do we at some point move to some sort of uh, listener advisory panel who helps make comments on the programming? My shoulders get a little tight when I think about <laughs> other people commenting on the programming, but it may very well be necessary. We've talked about having a shared leadership model of governance at the radio station. We're not quite there yet. Uh, the head of uh, Riverkeeper, great organization here. Uh, the executive director, Paul Galay, just announced his resignation after 11 years and simply said every nonprofit should change its leadership on a regular basis. That was his motivation for leaving. Maybe that at some point I may just find myself in that position of saying, you know, it's time just to let it be different. We have a new studio opening in early 2021, that space across the street from where we are now is going to be a big commons. It's going to be, you know, it's going to be a wide open campus for a lot of people to hopefully participate in, not just on the air, but in other aspects as well. And our broadcast tower is surrounded by four acres of land that is um, about a week away from being completely covered in solar panels because we can use that land to generate electricity for our community. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious to see myself where we'll be. It strikes me that you're as much a radio station as a, a commons with a lot of assets, but that bleeds into the life and politics of the community. And so it's really, you're kind of a different beast than simply a radio station. Without a doubt, we've grown into this position of ourselves being, uh, you know, for lack of a better description, a social justice organization alongside um, many other social justice organizations in the city. Um, how we fit into that mosaic is, you know, we're still determining.
Well, Jimmy, I want to thank you for taking time out to talk with me, and I really wish you the best in Kingston Radio in its coming challenges in the coming years. Thanks, David. Always great to talk about um, these ideas with you. The original name for Radio Kingston was Kingston Commons Radio, and I saw you uh, give a talk at a local community college about three and a half years ago when this was not quite a done deal yet. Um, It was an idea in the spring of 2017, and I heard you speak and I heard you talk about the Commons. Um, It greatly influenced and informed uh, a lot of what we do. Well, thank you. I'm pleased to hear that. And I'm, I, I've just been so admiring from afar of the developmental progress you guys have been making. And I'm really eager to see how it unfolds in the coming years. So we'll check back again, I'm sure. Sounds good, David. Thanks.